Good afternoon, and welcome to the Voice of Wisdom. With over 60 years of experience as an investment banker, entrepreneur, investment analyst, economist, and venture capitalist, Morty Davis is Wall Street and capitalism personified. The over 400 companies for which he has raised more than $3 billion over the years have created a countless number of jobs and exciting new products. Through the voice of wisdom, Mr. Davis explores, analyzes, and debates the most topical political, economic, and social issues facing our world today. Joining Mr. Davis for a discussion on how society, values, and culture has changed over the generations is Ellie Stoller. And now, Mr. Davis and Mr. Stoller. Hello again. <clears throat> it's great to be back with you, my very precious, cherished listeners on our on my podcast or our podcast. I look forward to this session every week at 6.30 Wednesdays. <clears throat> anyway, we're in, in for a, an interesting and exciting uh, evening to, together, podcast together, because I have a charming young man who my wife uh, is responsible for because she gave birth to his mother. And that's, uh, that's he's one of the dividends. So I invited him because he's got a great sense of humor, terrific wisdom. He's a, an entrepreneur who's developed real estate and uh, is a real estate investor. If you got anything good, at, uh, promising in, in the real estate field, just expose it to me or to him, and he'll, he'll make you rich on it. That, that sounds great to me, Zaidi. <laughs> well, uh, I'm really happy, honored to be here to... To, uh, to aggravate me. To aggravate you, co-host this with you tonight. <laughs> um, I, this feels like this is the pinnacle. I, I've, hit the, I've hit the top. Um, so I got to say, I'm, I'm sitting here in this room with you, looking around, and I noticed that you have you know, a big microphone and this big you know, um, light and... I'm here with a little microphone and a little light. So I got to ask the age-old questions, I eat. Does size matter? No, not with microphones. Some, some people have the biggest microphones and say the stupidest things, and they'd be better off if it was much smaller, so small that you couldn't hear, hear it. And other people have a tiny microphone, and they say words of wisdom, and, and uh, you can so that in this case, size doesn't matter. Okay. Great. So you, you, you definitely got the better deal. I got this lumpy thing, and you got the, and and your technology. That shows the young people have much better technology. You know, they always ask these little kids. Always ask me, how did you carry those telephones in your pocket? They're looking on the ones that we used to have on the wall. You know, these big or on the counter. They say, how did you carry that around? They, they think that was the, the predecessor of cell phones. So uh, size is, is not... Maybe the size of your brain is, it might be relevant, but not the size of your phone. Okay. Well, I guess, I guess uh, that is the, uh, that's the arbiter on the matter. Um, so I got to say, just um, you know, looking around this room, it's a beautiful, beautiful mahogany room that we're sitting in here. Um, really makes me feel, um, you know, very, um, very warm inside. 
Um, beautiful picture of your wife, my grandmother, Ima. Um, and feels like a lot of history and culture in here. Um, in school, personally, you know, I, I dreaded history class. Um, but now, looking back, you know, sitting here with you, history really, I think, is a fascinating subject to discuss. Um, so I want you to, if you will, indulge you'd, me. You'd rather live history than, uh, than uh, go within a classroom and, and study history. It's too, too, too dull. But they, don't, they don't make it exciting. History could be very exciting. How? For example, I'm old enough to have been uh, there when Lincoln was shot. That was very exciting. Everybody ran, to, everybody ran to see what's going on. Whether somebody said that something happened in a movie, something happening in, happening in the theater, somebody's in a warehouse with a gun. It was action-filled. If they make history dull, then it can be dull. It's like many other subjects. It depends on the presentation. Okay, so let's let's jump into some history here because I, w- I want if you will, travel back in time, you know, to, to, the, to the Morty Davis, you know, a five-year-old, seven-year-old Morty Davis. Um, paint me a picture of what your life was like then, what the world was like, um, what your living situation was, um, and, you know, what was maybe common amongst your friends as far as their living situations. Do I have to live through that again? I had a miserable job. I got beat up by my rabbis, by my... In those days, my, my rabbis were newly arrived from Poland, Russia, Hungary. Uh, it was the height of the Depression. I was born in 1929. My father said it was a terrible year. There was a, a financial crash at the beginning of the Great Depression, and I was born. Oh. I, was, I was a failed abortion. I was 14 years old. They were still trying to abort me. I wouldn't eat a meal unless they, I fed it to my cats first to make sure that they're not trying to get rid of me. But uh, no, the, the old days were, uh, were definitely different. The kids, as kids, we didn't spend time on uh, video games. So on video games, you stay in the house all day long and you play by yourself. We didn't have social uh, media destinations like Facebook or Instagram or Twitter where people are on the phone all day long and and they say such terrible things. Uh, they say interesting things too, but uh, a lot of gossip, a lot of uh, negativity. Uh, you're allowed to say almost anything hateful. So we were out in the fresh air, you know, the all day long... Uh, if we weren't home by 10 o'clock or something, then, then our parents called the cops. But other than that, uh, we were really, we made our own kind of sports. Like what? What were the sports that you played? We played punch ball. And, you know, What's punch ball? It was a spalding ball. I don't know if you know what a spalding ball is. It's a tennis ball that, that's balled. So it's just the rubber, and it's a higher bouncer, and you'd hit it with a your fist, and the guys that were good would hit it more than a sword. The really great guys could hit it 
two sewers, and then from that there was like a baseball. You ran around the bases. I didn't so, know that a sewer was a form of measurement in those days. How far so you could hit ball? Because we played in the middle of the gutter, and in the middle of the gutter, gutter there were in the middle of the street, in the middle of the street there was sewers every. Uh, I don't know, 40 yards. Where, and where is this? This is Brooklyn? Brooklyn, yeah. Oh. So uh, we played stoop ball. You bounce the ball off the stoop, and you try to hit it over the guy's head. We, we made up our own games. We, made, we took um, cheese boxes. Uh, in those days, uh, they, they had... Uh, wooden boxes that cheese came in and uh, I think it held a bunch of portions but you got it from the uh, the dairy counter when they finished one we made holes in the little holes in the side and we had marbles and we tried to get from 20 feet away or 30 feet away roll the marbles through the holes and then we made out of um, boxes that Hug came in to the fruit store filled with oranges. And we put skates on the bottom of them and extended them with a, a board as, uh, so you could stand on it. And those were our scooters. So we made it because we were also poor. We couldn't afford to buy anything. That's awesome. So it sort of depended on our personal creativity. That's not, not me. I mean, you know, I, I was totally inept, so I could never make anything. But I'm talking about the group of boys that I hung out with. So none of those sound like typical sports or activities, let alone like all the technology that kids play with today. But I mean, now you ask a kid, what, what do they play? It's baseball, football, basketball, hockey. Were those sports big when you were a kid? Were sports not as central to life? No, clearly they were nowhere near as central or as important or as lucrative as they are today because there was no television. <clears throat> so I sat in front of the radio and watched, uh, not watched, listened to the Brooklyn Dodgers. I could visualize because the announcers were good and they, they were chatty, so I liked the, the announcer for the Dodgers, there was uh, Red Barber with a southern accent to the Yankees, so a good announcer was Mel Allen. And <clears throat> I became attached to them so much so, even more than if I watched them on television, because I, I became so in love with the Brooklyn Dodgers. I said, God, if Dolph Camilla could hit a home run right now, you could take my right arm. And they were, they were in last place. Every year they wound up in last place. Their motto was, wait till next year. Are you happy of the arm still? <laughs> I'm happy God didn't listen to me. <laughs> I asked for a lot of things from God. I said, God, let me have that over the years. Let me have, the, let me have success with that girl. And then I had success with the girl. It turned out like the biggest tragedy of my life. So these days, I, I say, God, let me have something, but I give him general guidance. I say, only if it's good for me. Here's what I'm willing to Cause do. Because I, I don't know what's good for me. You know, a lot of times, 
be careful what you ask for, you may get it. Yeah. So, uh, so I give God more general instructions. So you're, you're just jumping back to the sports. You know, now also, probably you ask a kid who their role models are. It's, you know, a, a big basketball player, maybe a big football player, a celebrity. You know, back then, if you're saying that there wasn't, sports wasn't as prevalent, you didn't have TVs, were, were they the role models? What were they like? No, was my it... father took me to, uh, <clears throat> unfortunately, he didn't ever took me to a baseball game, a football game. Otherwise, I would have owned a football team years ago. I, did, I hated football. All my partners would leave Monday night all excited for Monday night football. I didn't know what they were talking about. It was, it was not, you didn't learn about it, or I didn't anyway, learn about football on radio. But baseball was slow, and they talked a lot. And Now I could even listen to football on radio because I can visualize what happened, but I never saw a football game. And years ago, way back in 1964, one of my classmates from Harvard Business School came to see me, and he said, Morty, let's buy the Baltimore Colts. Baltimore Colts, yeah. Today they're the Baltimore Ravens, Ravens right? Yeah, and Colts are in Indianapolis. Yeah. So I, I had zero interest. I said, what are you talking about? I have no interest. But from the, the time I was a kid, I went there to buy the Brooklyn Dodgers. And we were so poor, I couldn't even buy the baseballs that they used, much less the whole team. Yeah. But also, they were a lot cheaper, the ball players at the end of the game today at the Yankee Stadium, I watched the players leaving chauffeured limousines or an expense, the most expensive Rolls Royces. In those days, the the players left just like the the spectators, and they took a trolley. There used to be trolleys still in those days. They took the subway. They took a bus. They didn't, they didn't make much money. So sports players weren't as big of Babe Ruth, celebrities as Babe they are Ruth now. Babe one year was signed to the biggest contract ever, $100,000 for the year. And one of the sports writers said to him, you know, you're getting paid more than President of the United States. And Babe Ruth said, I had a much better year than he did. <laughs> so I, I was asking around, you know, how, how much would it cost to buy the Brooklyn Dodgers? So somebody seemed to have some knowledge of it, and he told me it probably cost you a million dollars or thereabout. And the guy that owned it was a guy, Mc, uh, some Irish guy. They owned it because they, they owned a big bank in Brooklyn, and they had foreclosed on the owner. He went the Brooklyn Dodgers had gone bankrupt, so he owned it. So all the, all the time, all my life was trying to even when, when I got to Wall Street, I was thinking I'll buy the, I'll try to buy the Dodgers. Although they broke my heart, they moved to Los Angeles, and I never became a fan of any team. I'm a fan of sports. I watch the games, and I uh, during the game I'll decide, or oh, one of my grandchildren, like one of my grand sons, sons-in-law, is from Philadelphia, so he and all those kids, are. Avid Philadelphia Eagle fans. So now the Philadelphia Eagles are number one in football this year. 
So I'm very excited for them, and I root for the Eagles. In past years, your family was the Giant fans, so when, when the Giants were doing well, I was rooting with you. But in general, I just root for the team during the process of the unfolding of the game. So just getting back... A and I did ultimately own 16% of the, um, of the Mets because one of the guys who worked for me told me to buy a good analyst. Brilliant guy. His name was Charles Srebnik. He was a Holocaust survivor. Yeah, but he was still relatively young. And he, he gave me some good ideas over the years. He said, buy Doubleday. I don't know if you know who Doubleday was. Doubleday was the founder of uh, Major League Baseball in the 1800s, late 1800s. So that company was a printing company, and they owned the, uh, the Mets. Yeah. So I bought 16% of the Doubleday company, and therefore I owned 16% of the Mets through them. Then they spun off the Mets, and Wilp, Fred Wilpon bought them, came to see me and said, he bid $90 million for the Mets. He said, Morty, I'd like you to either sell me the, your shares or be a limited partner, if you like, stay on as a limited partner. And I said, I was doing very well and I was enjoying my career on Wall Street. So I said, I don't like the idea of being a limited partner. I'll sell the shares to you. So I sold them for $16 million, uh, which was a big game for me. Today, it would be worth that 16% given what they sold for and what the television station they developed. SNY. SNY would be worth about a billion dollars. Yeah. And then I had a chance to buy the... Uh, Maybe I, we can give your arm for that. I put it. No, I put a deposit on the New England Patriots with with the commissioner. He congratulated me because the Patriots were on the verge of going bankrupt. A guy Victor Kai among them. He was famous because he he was a, a, a big advertiser for Remington Electric Shaver, mm -hmm. and his advertisement was, "I loved the shaver so much I bought the company." So he owned Remington. And he had to sell because the, the company, the Patriots were losing money and he couldn't afford the losses. So I finally negotiated, the league took over the team, I negotiated to buy it for $106 million. I gave a million dollar deposit, the commissioner congratulated me, and I, I was in the process of you know, gathering together the rest of the money so I could pay the league for the team. In the meantime, I got a call from the commissioner. He says, Morty, we can't sell you the team. The league can't sell you the team. I said, well, what happened? You gave me congratulations. You said, I'm on the way to being one of the owners. Because he had to get approval from all the owners, but he, was, he assured me that wouldn't be an, a, uh, an impediment at my age. So anyway, I gave him the deposit, and he said, we got to sell it to this guy who came to buy it. He, he needs it for a tax loss. His name was, I think, August Bush. I don't know if August was the first name, but Bush was his last name. They owned Ballantyne, Miller Highlight, the, the beer company. And they were the biggest advertisers 
of all sports. They still may be, I'm not sure if they still are. But at that time, they were the biggest advertisers of boxing, baseball, football, hockey, everything. So he said, we got to sell it to them because they're the biggest advertisers and our number one source of real revenues. So he bought it for the same price I was going to pay, $106 million. He got an immediate $16 million tax loss by depreciation of players or something. I never understood why they give him a tax loss for that. And then he kept it maybe two, three years, sold it almost for the same price he bought it for, because he only bought it to get the tax loss. And he sold it to um, to the guy who owns it now. Robert Kraft. Robert Kraft. Robert Kraft's a great guy. Rosie and I, my wife, met him at the, um, a spa that we went to. Um, what was the name of the spa? Up in... Um, Canyon Ranch, yeah. Canyon Ranch. Two years in a row we had dinner with him and his wife. But he's a big philanthropist. He's a great, great contributor to Israel. So I'm happy that he got it. But today it's worth $5 billion. So from $106 million, I would add $5 billion. Yeah. I told that to one of my other grandsons. And I said, could you imagine what a bad break that was? He said, that wasn't a bad break. You're lucky you didn't get it. I said, why? He said, because all your grandchildren would have been screwed up. They would have been involved in the team and going. And uh, For example, I took my president of my uh, investment banking company when I had a contract to buy the Miami uh, Dolphins. Dolphins. <clears throat> and I was sitting with the owners of the team, uh, Robbie, their father had died. They had to sell the team because they couldn't pay the uh, estate taxes. There were a bunch of inheritors, so they were compelled to sell the team so they could get enough money to pay the taxes and distribute to the rest of the uh, legacies. So I had a deal. I spent $500,000 in legal fees. They agreed to sell it to me. And the only condition was I had to keep the name of the stadium, uh, the name of their father, Joe Robbie Stadium. So I agreed to do that, and I had it all, I shook hands, and then it turned out that the guy named Heisinger had lent Joe Robbie $10 million some years earlier, and I had to write a first refusal. So I was bidding $156 million. He came along and he matched my bid, they had to sell it to him. They hated him. And they, they, the last guy in the world they wanted to sell because he was a limited partner for years and they just didn't enjoy his partner. He uh, was a very controlling guy, very dominant. But anyway, they had to sell it to him. Within, I was naming the stadium Joe Robbie Stadium. Within four months, they sold the naming rights. Yeah. For a year, each year, they got $20 million for the naming rights. I think the name of the stadium is something like Pro Player Stadium or something. Yeah. It doesn't have any meaning. It's an advertisement for the this company, Pro Player. So it wasn't destined, but, but my grandson gave me good insights. He's right. 
because I know that. Oh, so I started to tell you. So I took my president. So we were down in the field. I was with him. Marino, their quarterback, was Shula. I could have got all kind of things that are worth a lot of money today, signed, pay football for you, but I was more interested in finishing the purchase of the team. But my president spent all this time with binoculars looking at the cheerleaders. <laughs> <laughs> and then my, all my son-in-laws would have been involved with cheerleaders, with, yeah. with going to games. With, they, they wouldn't have been interested in schools. They would have been big shots with their friends. That's so, so God saved me from that blessing. Yep, and he kept you, and he gave you your right arm still. He gave me what? He kept you with your right arm still. Yeah, that's true too. That's uh... yeah. So, so jumping back a little bit here, uh, you were saying that you were in the streets playing with your friends. If you guys wanted to hang out, how did you like get in t- touch with them? You know, cell phones weren't around, Facebook, Instagram. All these things weren't we all, we all lived within a few blocks of each other. So you would just... So we'd just go to, go to the house. Or they'd come to my house. We, we visited each other physically. Today, that's what I'm saying. With the social media, you hardly ever get together, you know. How do you think that's changed maybe the dynamics of relationships? You know, I always see, like, the older generation is always much more friendly with their parents' friends than the younger generation now, where they maybe don't even know their parents. Well, well. you know, uh, just at the most basic level, even though we were orthodox and religious, and the rabbis discouraged it, but at that time, we went to social dances Saturday night, my friends and I, when we were like 15, and we met girls. Exclusively Jewish, or? Yeah, there were young Israel of, Williamsburg, Young Israel of Lower East Side, Young Israel of Eastern Parkway, right near Chabad, right near... The and they serve food trail. at these things? And what? Do they serve food? No. It, it wasn't food-oriented. It was just a dancing. And there was... How, how did you have music? There was a band. A band? Yeah. What, what's, what kind of bands do they have? It was a small band, you know, four or five guys that played. Yeah. Or maybe they had... I don't remember, maybe... They, they had those old um, records, you know, what um, vinyl records that they put on. So, so they had one guy stick playing play the records. As, but in contrast, today, today they people were traditionally up to recent years, they'd go to bars and hang out and help pick, try to pick up a guy or a girl, depending on what sex you were. Although these days, it, it, it doesn't matter really. You guys go to bars and pick up other guys. Griner just came back from being a hostage in Russia, and every day she, they point out she's with her wife. You know, so it's a changed world. We didn't know about transvestites. Um, maybe a better world in some respects, because uh, there's more tolerance for people that are different than... We were, but Change. very different. So, and, and not only that, but so many of the people I meet that get married say they met their mate on Harmony or uh, Tinder or whatever, you know. Right. What um, was there? Was there a place that like people? I mean, I always read Archie comments growing up, and they would always like meet in the burger joint, and they would hang out there. Was there a place that you that 
you and your friends would hang out and, and meet up? Well, yeah, we you know we went to um, to local delis. We we a hot dog was like a nickel in those days, a crumby sandwich or a pastrami sandwich or a brisket sandwich was I think eight cents or ten cents. I mean, but it was hard to make money. If we found a penny on the street or a nickel on the street, we felt like we were lucky. Today, you can't buy anything with that kind of money. Well, why do you but say we was... did, but we didn't hang out so much there. We we go in and maybe they'd be in there for a half hour or an hour, but not like today. Today I speak to one of my grandsons, and I said, "Where are you going?" He says, "I'm going to Starbucks." I said, "How come? You know, you, you want a cup of coffee?" No, no, I'm going to. I do my work there. I I can study for my for my uh, regents or for my uh, finals. I didn't even know they let you hang out that long there. Yeah. I said, they let you hang out that long? He said, yeah. They set it up that way. So it becomes a place, even even um, bookstores uh, like uh, today have little coffee shops in the bookstores, Barnes & Noble. Used to be you walk in to buy a book and and you worked out. Now you could hang out and read and meet your friends there and so forth. So there's a lot of pluses and a lot of minuses. Was it were the relationships with the store owners different? Like you always see in the movies that like they knew each other's names. Now it's you know you go shopping, you run into the store, you grab something, you don't know anybody that's in the store, you don't know who owns the store, you don't know who works at the store. Yeah, well, what was it like? Everything was much smaller and much so more more intimate. But also they could be angry at you too. Yeah. They could throw you out of the store if if you misbehaved or some. Uh, I don't think the owners of businesses were very different than they are today. Maybe today they're not as connected because the owners of this uh, store were, were the entrepreneur that built them and owned them. Today they're franchisees, they're, they're, they buy it from somebody else. And so it's very, that's very different. It was definitely more personal. Right. Do you think that's, that's hurt society or do you think it hasn't had an impact? Well, again, there's plus and minuses because if you go to Walmart... You get everything at, the, at a price that's unbelievable, you know. Almost everything they, they sell there is made in China or Vietnam or at very low cost, at very low, and it's imported. Uh, when we were kids, everything was made in the United States mostly. There was a lot of stuff that was made in Japan, but it was hopelessly uh, inept, uh, not quality. They said, "How do you, how do you uh, get rid of a, a toy from China or Japan?" They say, "You wind it up, and it it blows up or disappears or breaks. Very poor quality." The United States had the top quality products. Today, you know, Japan makes excellent products. Great cars, Toyota, Honda, Lexus. They make ter- terrific. Computers, China does, but but 
China does it at, at a fraction of what what we can produce it for. Right. So you you just mentioned a lot about things that maybe. But we don't we don't meet the owner right. of Walmart when we get right. it. Right. That's true. So you, you mentioned um, that there's a lot of things that used to be very expensive, and now you can maybe get a you know a, a desk in a Walmart or chair, whatever it is you want, at a very reasonable cost. What's something that you think maybe had the inverse of that, something that was maybe more affordable, so to speak, when you were younger? And as time's gone on, now it's become almost like too expensive. You know, let's say a real wooden desk. Nowadays, people can't even afford a real wooden desk. They can get only, you know, a desk from Walmart or Wayfair.com, you know, but a real wooden one they would never be able to get. When I was young... People couldn't afford anything. Most people couldn't afford anything. If you had $10,000, we considered you were a millionaire. You could buy, in Williamsburg, where I was brought up, <clears throat> for what it costs you for a condo today, you probably could have bought two square blocks. Yeah. It was, you know, there was no comparison to, to the prices. Although, the, you know, the currency is worth much less today. Uh, for a dollar, I'd go to shopping in a in a grocery shop or in a market uh, with little franchisees. Uh, each 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 there was a dairy uh, stop off that there was a owner there there was a uh, fruit stop off. So much so, my father owned a, a fruit stand with my uncle in uh, one of these markets and uh, he had all not like a desk like this not 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 even painted raw wood and he put up out his tomatoes and his uh, oranges and his put it up in the morning and people came and picked it up so they had the bakery where you, where you got bagels and rolls and cake they had all different kind of uh, they had an appetizing store where you could buy locks that are fish. All in one, one. They didn't call it a supermarket. They just called it a market. And that's it. But I'll tell you an interesting story that occurred during that period. The cops stopped off at my father's. We lived down a block from the market. They came on to arrest my father and my uncle. So my my mother, father and my uncle say, well, what, 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 what did we do? What happened? They said, we found a, uh, an oily rag in your uh, wood stand, your fruit stands, that started a big fire in the market. Wow. So fortunately, uh, it's a good thing they didn't have insurance. Ah. So the cops figured out. They said, you know, you, you clearly did it to collect insurance. Right. They said, we don't have insurance. You know, what was there to insure? We yeah. couldn't even afford insurance. So it turned out that there was a deli next door, not in the market, but a store right next door. The guy apparently started in my father's place, and uh, and the guy wound up in jail. But, but you know, that was sometimes you're lucky that you don't have what you're supposed to have insurance. Right. So Anyway, that changed my father's destination. My uncle never came back to that store. He moved to Baltimore, Maryland. He opened a salami, bologna, hot dog, 
kosher, uh, European kosher was called. He never had kids, so he built a, a, a bigger shiva than near Yisrael. Huh. It was very, very uh, popular in that area. And my father went into becoming a jobber, salesman store, store to store, of also these same products, hot dogs, bologna, salami. Huh. So, um, did you see your father a lot growing up? Your parents, were they always working a lot? How did you get raised? Um, did I see him a lot? Um, some, every night, I guess, he came home. And uh, I saw him on Friday night and Saturday. And my mother was, was home all the time. She was a home housekeeper, a homekeeper. And, uh, but my, unfortunately for me and my brother, <clears throat> and we had a little sister too, but at the time we had a little sister, my father was more affectionate, more loving. But during my whole existence, because they, they left Europe early and they never got a hug from their parents, they never got a kiss. So throughout my entire youth and till I got married. Maybe I, maybe they, at my marriage they might have kissed me. Uh, so I never got hugged, I never got kissed. So we didn't get a lot of affection. Look, I got a lot of beatings from uh, my father. Looking back... He was very frustrated. Looking back now on that, do you... Have you... Is there any change in appreciation of, of your father as maybe an older person looking back and understanding a little bit more... Uh, you know about him and what was going on in the world and where he came from. Has that perception changed over time? I didn't appreciate the beatings he gave me because he was very frustrated. He was newly arrived. He couldn't even get a job because um, at that time he was very orthodox, very religious. He wouldn't work on Saturday. And in those days, in 1930, even if you worked on Saturday, there was 25% unemployment. It was the height of the Depression. But if you didn't work on Saturday, you surely couldn't get a job. So he had a push cart on the Lower East Side. He sells fruit and vegetables. It's like Jackie Mason says, his father got wiped out in the crash of 29 because people jumped out of the window. Oh. The stock market crashed, and, and you didn't know it. I don't know if you ever saw the movie. You should see it. Oh. it the crash of 29 or something like that. The tape ran late. There were rumors, you know, that the General Motors closed the day before the 28th, and they said it's selling at 3, it's selling at 2, you know, because nobody could get up to date. So people jumped out the window, and they had 5% margin in those days. So that means the minute a stock dropped 5% or less, because they didn't wait to, to call you till you were wiped out totally. Uh-huh. So if it dropped down 3 or 4%, they called you, you got to bring them money right away. Or the, and so they sold them out. So people were wiped out, even though people had big, big accounts, but only 5% equity, like happened to Lehman Brothers uh-huh. and Bear Stearns in the re- more recent. Same people were, borrowing, people were borrowing 95% of the money and then once it would go down 5%, you know, right. if, if there was a $100 stock, they were putting in $5. And Lehman... If it went down to 95 Le- they would call them and, and say, bring in $95 for us. People don't realize it. In 2008, Lehman and, and Bear Stearns and others, even Merrill Lynch, 
were so leveraged, they were down to like 2% equity. So they made fortunes because every time it made up two, went up 2%, they were making 100%, right? Yeah. So with small equity, and the housing market was exploding, they were making a lot of money. And then when it started to drop, right. it dropped 5%, there was no more equity. Right. So Lehman was wiped out. Merrill Lynch was the biggest company brokerage firm in the world. They had to sell out. They wound up as part of Bank America. Bear Stearns was wiped out. They wound up as part of Morgan Stanley. Lehman was wiped out and triggered the biggest crash since the Great Depression. But the Jackie Mason says, his father was wiped out in a crash of 29 because he had his own pushcart and somebody jumped out of the window and landed on his pushcart. <laughs> yeah, it's a great, it's a great joke. Um, wow. So, anyways, so so looking back, okay, so um, it, I, I, as far as, you know, just sort of shifting gears here. No, but we were, the one yeah. thing was much more exciting. I remember the first time my wife and I went to buy a television, you know, it was such a big deal. We were saving up for two years to buy a television. And we went to the store and we were shopping and looking over and everything. But it was such a thrill for us to go buy something. Today, yeah. today when I buy, you know, when I bought my first Cadillac, I was so impressed with myself and, uh, you know, I'm driving down, I figured everybody's looking at me in my car. Yeah. And today I could buy the best thing in the world and I don't I don't even realize you know that right. I take it for granted because yeah. in those days we appreciated the things we could own or get yeah. what's a what's a fond memory that you maybe have or the earliest fond memory that you have with your entire family um, you know your mother your father your brother your sister or something from the childhood you know whether it was a you know a holiday a, you know a Hanukkah party or something that, you know, your whole family together and you look back and you think, wow, that was a, you know, that was just a, a special moment in my childhood. I don't know. I could tell you a lot of negative <laughs> negative, but a fun memory. I guess some of the fun memories was uh, my father played stoop ball with us. My, he took us to the uh, Brooklyn Dodger games once in a while, maybe twice a year. So those were fun memories. Uh, my mother made us. Uh, she would, she wasn't a great cook, but Sunday dinner, inevitably we had um, the same thing almost every Sunday evening, and that's the one meal I liked. Otherwise, I always said I was full. I, I didn't even eat anything. I never. I was very thin, because eating was a pain in the ass, because it wasn't very well-cooked or anything. You know, it's like this guy is married to a woman and he says, how come you never learned to cook like my mother? And he's always complaining. And she tried every recipe, everything. She can't get it right. He says, why can't you learn to cook like my mother? One day she runs out and leaves all the food on the stove cooking. And she doesn't realize that. She comes back and everything is burned and she got nothing else to serve her husband. So she takes the food and sticks, puts it in front of him, and she's afraid he's going to scream at her and yell at her and so forth. 
And he says, ah, oh, finally you learned how to cook like my mother. Yeah. So, uh, but Sunday night we'd have two hot dogs, French fried, baked beans, and maybe uh, a Coca-Cola, something. And that was like the biggest treat. And I used to make sure I finished the hot dog, the French fries, the baked beans, all together. I used to get so angry at my wife because if she took a French fry early on, I didn't care. I said you could have it. <laughs> or if she took some of But if near the end, she took one and I had to eat the hot dog along without the French I got so... I said, why do you, why do you take my last one? Anyway. Uh-huh. Different, so, different values at different times. Yeah. Wow. So we, we got I got beat up by by non-Jewish kids in the country in the summer, and in the winter I was wearing a yarmulke on and back back and forth from school. Some of them beat me up. They said I killed Jesus. I got beat up the first fourteen years of my life. I thought I was a punching bag. My rabbis beat me up. My father beat me up, and he's. Uh, uh, Gentile kids, because I wore a yarmulke, they used to stop me and beat me up, telling me I killed Jesus. And unfortunately, well, uh, did you? Unfortunately, I told them <laughs> I didn't, and I didn't know who they're talking about because in my school, it was a Hebrew parochial school, they didn't teach us anything about Jesus, so I didn't know who they're talking. I thought they had the wrong guy. <laughs> so. So, so it wasn't it wasn't the good old days weren't such good old days, just like the the golden years that they promise you. Now I'm living the golden years. I'd rather have the 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 the, the ten years the instead ten years. of the golden years. And, uh, so what? Um, so just just visualizing you in that situation now. You know, we kind of touched on your childhood. Now I imagine you know your teenage years. You know, what was in your mind looking for? What was like your, okay, how am I going to get out of here? Was there something that you said, okay, like I have certain ambitions or just in the community, was it like, hey, we're going to get out of here. We're going to change our situation. No, was, the only was ambition, there the only ambition I had, and it drove me, that was drove, what drove me the most, was to distance myself from the prevailing poverty. So people say, why were you so neurotic, compulsive, working so hard? It was because I wanted to succeed because I wanted to get away from being so poor. So like at one time, me and a friend were walking down the street near our school and some older guy came up to us and said, if you could get $5,000 a year guaranteed, salary, would you take the job? And my friend immediately said, of course I'll take it. And me, I, I, you know, I didn't have any money, but I said, and I didn't know why I didn't say I'd take it, but I just said, you know, I wouldn't take it. So I said, why not? I said, you know, maybe if I worked hard, I could do better. But really, you know, that was a big deal making. Even when I got out of Harvard Business School, when I got out of Harvard Business School, because I had three kids, and I was in the top of my class, I graduated Harvard Business School with distinction. The guy says, I'm going to start you 
This was 1959. I said, I'm going to start you with a higher salary because you have three kids. So I said, great. What do you think he started me with? I don't 59. know. 5,500 a year. Wow. The, other, the others that, that didn't have a family or kids, they started with 5,000. So that was the big deal. Wow. So, so I imagine now you're, you're a young father of three and eventually four. You've got a wife. Um, what phase of parenthood, you know, I myself just had a third baby, third kid now. I've got a, you know, a two-week-old, a five-year-old, and a three-year-old. So Good for you. Thank you. Those are my dividends. Yes. Um, what what phase of parenthood um, did you enjoy the most? Did you like when they were, you know, did you like life when you had young kids? Did you like them when they got like teenage years? You know, was it, what phase did you really enjoy? And was there some sort of specific, you know, image that you have in your head reflecting back and be like, oh, wow, like when I think about those years, that's the image that pops into my head? No, <clears throat> well, it's a good question because I got married very young. I was 21. My wife was not even 18 yet. And we had three kids real quick, three babies. So she had three by the time she was almost 22, 21 and a half or something. And I was almost, I guess, 24, 25 almost. And poor Razi, she was overwhelmed with these three little kids. We were very poor. We lived in very cramped quarters. We had, uh, I think we were paying on the Lower East Side, $18 a month rent. And uh, we had one living room and very small, tiny bedroom. So we had, a, my wife and I slept on a, on a, what did they call it? A couch that opened up. I forget what the name of it was at that, at that time. It was a famous brand that opened up. Murphy Bed? What? No, it was a brand name. Castro Convertible? Castro Convertible, yeah, Castro. So we opened that night, we opened it. was a couch during the daytime and opened it up. And at the end of the, our opening of the bed were two cribs, so there was a baby in each one. And then in a tiny room, which is not as big as my current closets, uh, was the third baby. So I started to tell you that story because Rosie was, at time, suicidal. She was overwhelmed with, with so much responsibility at such a young age with no, no help. And uh, we had mice and rats and roaches and... I used to stamp my feet at the road, at the at the rats, and they'd, they'd look at me and they'd they'd stay there. And then we got cats. The cats ran away. They were so afraid of the rats. <laughs> so it wasn't a fun time. Uh, but and I wasn't making a lot of money, and she wasn't working part time. Like weekends, she'd work while I was at home. Uh, it was it was a tough time, and one thing I made up my mind, I'm not going to hit my kids. So I, only one time I lost my temper, 
and I had my kid, uh, Rocky, and I said, I'll never do that again. And then one time my father was hitting one of my daughters, maybe she was six or five, or, and I was, I was never so fresh then. I said, if you ever touch that again, hit her again, I'll... I'll, I'll you were upset. I'll do something terrible yeah. to you. you know. right. And then with time, you know, we, we... I think the biggest contributor to the success of our uh, children turning out so well was that my wife was particularly very religious and I accommodated her uh, being more religious than I would have been otherwise because I rebelled against my early education at Yeshiva. It was a very big turn-off. And, um, and so I never missed Friday night dinner or Saturday lunch with my kids. I was never home. During the week, I was working late, trying to make it. I worked like six and a half days a week. I went into work Saturday night to make cold calls, Sunday all day. I was in the office when nobody else was there. Right. I was making cold calls. So, Zaidi, we have a few minutes left here, um, and I want to ask just um, a few more, you know, more rapid-fire type of questions. Um, you better do everything rapid-fire. At my age, you, you may not get them in. Right. So I don't even buy green bananas at my age. Zaidi, if yeah. I offered you two pills, um, and one of them... I'd, I take them both. I take them both. <laughs> so if I offered you two pills, one of them, you took one of them, you could have anything you want in the world, um, and the other one um, gives you a chance to live your life all over again and do it all over again. What would you want? Would you want to do it all over again and, and just enjoy it all over again? Or is there anything now that you want in your life? Or I, I really would like to live my life over again with the knowledge that I have now because I could be so much more successful, but on the other hand, I consider myself the most fortunate man in, of anybody, because I had such a fabulous wife way beyond my deserving, that poor wife of mine, she had me, but, uh, but I told her we have a, a Hall of Fame marriage, because a Hall of Fame means if you're so good in baseball, if you get a hit one out of three times, you're batting 333, you definitely go to the Hall of Fame. So I told her we have a Hall of Fame marriage. For me, it's fabulous. For her, it's terrible. We're batting 500, so we had a... But I had a fabulous wife. I couldn't ask for a better wife. Tolerant and understanding and helpful and talented. She was a great actress, great dancer, great singer, everything. She right. Uh, all the all the virtues that she had, that I lacked, she yeah, had, yeah. and my she did a great job. She became totally dedicated to my kids. She could have made it big in Hollywood if she had that ambition. And uh, but she just spent yeah. her time investing in her kids, yeah. and she had she's got the dividends because she never had any problems that other parents had with their kids. Not one day. Aggravation. They had aggravation of different kinds. Mm -hmm. If they get sick or something, but they went through school well. They and and all our grandchildren are 
fabulous, yeah. and and fortunately I have more money than I need, so Great. that was a blessing too. I don't have much money as if I one of these things that I had an investment in happened or I hadn't solved yeah. it sooner. Can I ask you one but more? Yeah, one more question. But I, again, I I couldn't duplicate the life that I had, so I wouldn't. What what was the other pill? The other pill was what? You could have anything now. Anything now? Yeah. I'll take that pill. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, and does it make you sad when you think about getting older? Um, and what do you say to somebody, to other people who are getting older and feel sad about life passing by? I get sad being older that I can't play tennis or I can't do the things, the active things that I'd like to do. But I'm still working very hard, maybe in some respects harder than I ever worked. I'm writing books, I'm uh, spending a lot of time to the extent that I can with my multiple grandkids. My wife and I made our own village here. I, I was the only one of my classmates that I know of that listened to Hillary Clinton because we made a village. It's a, she said it takes a village. We have multiple, I don't want to say how many kids, I don't want to crook, get unlucky, but we have our own village all living nearby. Yeah. And they're all terrific and blessed. So I, I don't know what I'd ask. I'd ask for good health and and I'm angry at being older because I can't do the things that I'd like to do, all the things that I'd like to do. And also, there's a lot of things that I'd like to, entrepreneurial things that I'd like to right. do that, you know, I don't see living long enough to see them uh, come to fruition. But right. what do you say? It took me a long time to get to the stage. Yeah. It wasn't always, I was always yeah. striving and driving and so forth, but now. Uh, very content with right what do you say to, to to those people who are maybe living the struggle now you know still in early years of life struggling you know whether it's with family professionally um, socially what what's your message to them i i tell them the same as i tell my kids and grandkids it's not you know you gotta you gotta Design your life around this value. And this I got over time from very learned rabbis and scholars uh, that, that I was exposed to. And that is, if every day you get, when you get up, you say, you're thankful for everything that you have. Count your blessings. Because, you know, if you got your good health, right away you're way ahead of the game. If you if you have other things in addition, you know, till you run into some disaster, you can't appreciate how off you have, well off you have. I had one uh, rabbi, young rabbi, terrific guy. He had one kid that was born with, uh, I think, born blind, and he told his, uh, all his other kids, you know, do you thank God? Do you, are you appreciate every every day that you could see? that you could see colors, that you could see different things, that you could see where you're running. And he would tell them, you know, could 
Do you appreciate that you can touch things and feel them? He asked, he got them to address every asset that they had naturally. And we don't do that. You know, we, we, we're always looking at the other side, our disappointments, our, our failures, our, uh, our uh, negatives. Uh, and that, that's a killer, that you can't be happy that way. If you always have a smile on your face, other people will smile with you. It, it, if you take that attitude, the other thing they said, if you want to have a happy marriage, every morning when you get up, the first thing to say to your wife, sweetheart, I'm sorry. You don't have to say anything more. more. She'll figure out at least 47 things yeah. you should be sorry for. Well, so those are good, good advice for everybody. Anyway, this was a very interesting session. We'll have to do it again because we didn't deal with uh, so many things. Oh, we'll, we'll, maybe we'll do a program where we discuss current events like I generally do, the major issues of the day. So thank you for joining me. Thank you for having I me. I love you. Come back. I hope I could come back. Uh, I look forward to the new year and I wish every one of you listeners and friends and relatives and, and all my loved ones everything wonderful this coming year and a great day every day of your life. God bless you. I love you. I'll be back January 4th. We're not going to be back next week. I want to give you a break. Also, I think people will be traveling and um, have a I don't think really better things to do, but other things that they feel compelled that they have to do. So again, thank you for tuning in. Tell your friends about it. You can hear it on YouTube anytime during the week. And um, I love you all. Bye.